And what I want to talk about this morning is how you practice the presence of God when you feel desperate and when you feel afraid and when you feel that, do you know what, it would be better if I didn't live. And I want to talk about uh, Elijah the prophet and the prayer he prays in chapter 19 of 1 Kings. It's interesting, Elijah, because in the previous chapter, chapter 18, he's gone through an incredible, incredible victory. Do you remember the account? He's on Mount Carmel and he says to the 400 prophets of the foreign god Baal, we're going to have a showdown and we're going to see who God is really. Is it your God or is it the God of Israel? And the one who can call down fire and consume the sacrifice, that one's God. And the other one isn't God. So he says, it's me on my own versus you, 450 prophets. And he says to the people who worship Baal, you go first. And so they do what they do. They start stamping and crying out and calling upon Baal to light up the sacrifice and nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And so Elijah gets a little bit cocky and says, maybe your God's asleep. Shout a bit louder, wake him up. And then he says, maybe your God's on the toilet. That's what it says, maybe your God's relieving himself. Shout a bit louder, he might come out of the toilet. Maybe he's gone on a long journey and didn't hear you. And so they get more and more passionate, these. And they get into a frenzy and nothing happens. He says, then he turns to God, the creator, and says, Show yourself to be God so that the hearts of Israel might turn back to you. And he says, to raise the stakes, let's put the stuff on the altar and then put, let's put a jug of water on the wood. And if you who know how to do a barbecue or a fire, you know if the wood gets wet, nothing much is going to happen. Let's put some more water on it and some more water, another jug. And then he asks God to consume the sacrifice with fire. And it says in the Bible that the fire was so powerful from heaven. It burnt up the sacrifice, it burnt up the, the wood, and it burnt up the stones and turned them to ash. So this is an amazing showdown victory. This is incredible. This is mountaintop experience and then he's at the top of the mountain there's been a drought and he calls for rain and it rains and King Ahab who was the king at the time in Israel who's turned to Baal he's not very happy about the whole thing so he goes to Jezebel his wife and if you look in chapter 19 of 1 Kings Ahab's an interesting guy. He often goes to Jezebel moaning and self-pity and complaining. 
And he says to her in chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then Elijah, who previously had faced 450 prophets in the showdown, then he was afraid. Because I want you to notice Elijah, the, the Bible says in James, was a man, a human, just like you and me. He has his moment of amazing victory and breakthrough, but then he got struck by fear. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. And then all on his own, in verse 4 it says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and sat down under a broom tree. And listen to this prayer. The man of faith, the man of great victory, the man of breakthrough, the man of courage and boldness. He said this to God. It is enough. It is enough. I mean, I've had enough. I'm frightened. I'm scared. Now, O Lord, take away my life. This is a suicidal prayer. I'm so afraid. I'm so disappointed. I'm so discouraged. Please, just kill me. And then he says, why? I'm no better than my father's. And he slept down. He, he lay down and slept. We'll read the rest later on. Just a moment here where Elijah is just overwhelmed with being afraid and being fearful that Jezebel's threats, that I'm going to kill you, that I'm going to do to you what you did to the prophets, it gets through his heart and it gets right to the core of who he is. And the lens he starts to see the world through, he starts to feel oppressed by fear. His viewpoint and perspective completely gets changed as this threat from the enemy just goes right through and pierces through his armour. And he comes to desperate conclusions. He is disappointed because he thought that that victory on the mountain, that coming rain, he thought that was the decisive transition moment that everything was going to change and that this wicked partnership of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel he believed that this was the turning point this was the moment when Israel were coming back to God this would be the moment of revival would be the moment of transformation would be the moment of breakthrough he believed that this was the decisive moment and that God had now shown himself to be strong, and that God was going to change everything. But then in verse of chapter 19, he discovers, no, Abraham is just as wicked as ever. 
that Ahab had not turned his heart back to God, that the king had seen the fire come and consume the stones, that the king had seen the rain come, and the king was still wicked and evil and opposed to God. He's feeling that nothing's changed. Nothing's changed, and Jezebel speaks a threat to him, and he goes running. It terrifies him, and it overwhelms him. And he looks at himself, and he's not really accusing God of anything here. There's a sense of, I'm disappointed with myself. I fought God that I was going to be the one to change the nation. I fought God in this courageous, bold moment that it was all going to change, and I'm disappointed with me. I'm no better than anybody who has gone before. I've not changed things the way I thought I was going to change them and nothing is changed and nothing is different and I'm in despair, I'm overwhelmed and I want to die. See, in the desert, in the wilderness, there's a prayer, the type of prayer that's not sanitised at all. It's real and honest and authentic and vulnerable. It's everything he feels in all of its absolute desperation. It's all presented to God in a moment. Sometimes we act with Jesus. We talk to Jesus and we say, You're so good, you're so good, I trust you, I love you, you're so faithful. And then we go over somewhere else and we are angry and we're frustrated and we numb the pain and then we come back to Jesus and say, I'm not disappointed with you, Jesus. You're so good and I love you and you're so faithful. And then we go back to the reality of how we really feel and there's a type of prayer that's in the desert that's not sanitised. It's not sanitised. It's not praying what we think Jesus wants us to pray. It's honest and it's real and it's brutal and it's authentic and it's everything presented to Jesus. The good, the bad and the ugly. He doesn't come to this relationship with God and sweep under the carpet his suffering and his pain and his discouragement and his his disappointment. I'm going to read you a quote. C.S. Lewis said this, C.S. Lewis, the great English writer, wrote Narnia, Lion, Witch, the Wardrobe, said, We should bring things to God, what is in us, not what ought to be in us. The oughts will keep us from telling the truth. They will keep us from feeling the truth, especially the truth about pain. It's got to be a real relationship with a real person, not a relationship of religion and performance where we present to Jesus this lovely mask of how much we trust him and love him and he's enough, but really we're in agony and pain and discouragement and disappointment and bitterness of soul. And maybe for you there were moments where you think, I thought that was going to be the breakthrough moment. I thought it was all going to change. 
And then you think, oh, nothing's changed really. I'm disappointed. See, honest non-performance brings us face to face with what is actually going on. Come into the throne of grace in your time of best performance that you might find grace and mercy to help you with your acting? Or is it coming to the throne of grace in your time of need? Putting your worst foot forward that you might receive grace and mercy. Not numbing, not covering, not performing, not masking. Honest, brutal, real This is what's actually going on. And Elijah does that. Brutally honest. See, emotions are like the dashboard on a car. You know, your car, if it needs oil and the oil light lights up, that's just really helpful information. You can ignore it if you want and carry on driving. Or you can top up the oil and get what the car needs and get a mechanic to have a look at it. It's what emotions are. They're helpful, good information. And Elijah is saying, I am stuck. I'm in the dark. And I am overwhelmed. I am frightened. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear but a power, love, and a sound mind. It's like the spirit of fear. Because really, Jezebel is an example of wickedness. And she really partnered with the demonic of fear and intimidation. And it's like her words pierced right through and he's touched by a spirit of fear it's enough now take my life away now we don't want to stay here because it's probably true that this kind of emotional suffering gets perpetuated and goes on because of self-obsession there's a moment of like what Rochelle was looking at last week the chairs I'm in this chair and I am being real with you God I'm sitting in the chair of fear I'm going to be brutally honest with you but I'm not going to stay in that chair because neurotic suffering often has its roots in self-obsession Elijah is thinking Take my life away, because I'm no better than anybody else. He's self-pitying, he's disappointed, he's overwhelmed with himself. And so feelings and emotions are a valuable, wonderful thing to have. Emotion is a gift from God. Happiness and joy and Laughter and excitement and anticipation and sadness and pain. These are real, honest things, but emotions were never designed to run the show. 
We're never designed to be the boss, to lead, guide and direct and tell us what the truth is. And Elijah can't stay in this place. And so what does God do? What do we think God will do? What does God do when we're really low and we feel it's overwhelming and it's dark and we feel stuck and we feel at our darkest? What does God do? It says in verse 4 of chapter 19, But he went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that his life he asked that he, he might die, saying, It is enough. O oh Lord, take away my life. I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there at his head a cake. Now, I... I think there's biblical justification to eat lots of cake from that. You could take that as an application point, you could. (laughs) A cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. We might think God would come to us in our darkest moment with tough love. And sometimes that's the voice that chatters in our head that we call God. That critical voice, that gotta do better voice, that double your efforts, what are you doing kind of voice. But God doesn't come with tough love and he doesn't come right at the beginning, pointing out where Elijah has got it wrong. (laughs) And we're going to look at this in three parts, because later on God does say, you're not the only one, Elijah. I've got 7,000 others. He doesn't come to him immediately and address the lie he believes with the truth that God sees. He doesn't come and say, these are just feelings. Stick to the facts. We need to see this because God knows that we are human beings. And I think some of our performance of, of, I love you Jesus, I love you Jesus, I love you Jesus, I trust you Jesus, and then over here, disappointed and in pain and in agony or numbing our pain in various ways is because we believe that Jesus doesn't understand that we're human. Which doesn't make any sense since God became man and dwelt amongst us. And that Jesus is familiar with all of our suffering and pain and all of our temptations because he was tempted in every way but never sinned. That's why he's a brilliant high priest. That's why he's the kind of high priest you can come on your worst day, because he understands, though he does not understand what it was to actively sin, 
though he understands what it is to have become sin on our behalf on the cross and to feel the full weight and ugliness and grotesqueness of what sin does in terms of our relationship with the holiness of God. He gets it completely. He understands what it is to be overwhelmed. He understands that because in Gethsemane he prayed, Oh, Father, can you find another way, please? Because my soul is overwhelmed. And he sweated blood, which we know means he's under incredible stress and duress and agony of soul. And so he knows, and so God knows that we are human. He knows that we are flesh and blood. He knows that we have emotions. He knows that there's a brand new resurrected spirit in this body. He knows that. And so he doesn't come to him and say, snap out of it. Stick to the facts. And nor does he say, Elijah, come forward for an encounter. Because he will have an encounter. He will have an encounter with God. And he will have an encounter with God, we'll discover in week three, in the silence. And he will have an encounter with God that leads to a strategic breakthrough of what to do next. He will have an encounter with God that commissions him to, to see Elisha and, uh, and see Elisha as his um, deputy and ultimate replacement. There will come answers to the need of what God is ultimately going to do about the evil of Ahab and the evil of Jezebel. God had a plan, God has a plan, God's going to do something, but Elijah is not ready at this point to hear anything about that. Because for God to take care of Elijah, he first needs to take care of Elijah's body. Because he understands that we've got a resurrected spirit in a real body. Yeah? We're physical beings. We're spiritual beings. Yeah? And our spiritual reality is in an earthen vessel, in a body. So he cares for his body. Elijah is feeling overwhelmed and suicidal and desperate because Elijah is exhausted physically and is really, really hungry. So God can speak a, a pep talk, a halftime talk, a rousing talk, a prophetic vision, and anything he wants, but it's not going to do any good in that moment because what Elijah really needs is a really good sleep and a really good meal. That's what he really needs right now. God knows we are not at our best when we're tired and hungry. He knows that. Have you ever had a perspective on something when you're really tired? And, you're, and your mouth goes in... Have you ever almost had an out-of-body experience watching yourself in overdrive when your mouth takes over when you're tired? And there's something in you that says, Stop! <laughs> These are not real conclusions! Your perspective is warped! And then, but you're, it's too late, it's too late. And have you ever felt really desperate and had a nap, and you're suddenly, diff your perspective, I don't even know what that was. 
Question your conclusions when you're tired and hungry. <coughs> Question them. God doesn't answer every prayer, fortunately, because take my life. <laughs> wow, thank you, God, that you don't answer every prayer. <laughs> Oh, some of my prayers. <laughs> I've looked at toddlers in pushchairs and, and I've looked at myself and thought, some of my prayers are like that. <laughs> Whining, moaning, unbelieving. And he's listened to every single one of them. <laughs> Elijah needs some sleep and he needs... A good meal. Some of, a big part of life is understanding that heaven has a rhythm. And that taking care of yourself, like the Bible gives the gift of a Sabbath, gift of rest. A gift to be still and know that he is God. A gift to slacken off. A gift to unplug. There's something powerful just about a life with healthy habits. There's something about exercising and sleeping enough. I mean, there used to be the thing, didn't there, in the 80s of the big... CEO powerful people and presidents and men and women who say I don't need to sleep more than two hours a night and actually scientists have said that's not really true people function best between seven and eight hours sleep actually eating healthy is a powerful means of staying with good perspective engaging in work that's meaningful to you and it can be that sometimes the work we get paid for isn't the work that's ultimately meaningful. But not everything we do is about what we earn. We can do work for money, but we also do things that we find meaningful and refreshing. Being creative. James O. Fraser was a missionary to the Lisu people in the 1920s. And James O. Fraser went to the mountains in China to share the gospel with the Lisu people. And he didn't know the language, he had to learn the language. And for 10 years he laboured and he saw one man come to know Jesus in 10 years. And then he saw that one convert, that one believer, turn back and worship the demonic. And James O. Fraser was desperate. In fact, he felt an overwhelming sense of, I wish I was dead and a deep desire to die. And then he discovered that when he felt that gloomy Everything changed when he went into the garden and did some gardening. So he didn't go into rallying, crying out mode and stamping his feet. And He did something different. He forgot about the ministry, he forgot about the mission, he forgot about what's not happening. And he did something that he found meaningful, that refreshed his spirit. And then he went back to work. He found things that were restorative and life-producing and built him up. It's an interesting story, actually. 
that when James O'Fraser was on his deathbed, he, well, previous to, to that, God had said to him, James, I'm going to save hundreds of Lisu men and women through your life. And on his deathbed from cerebral malaria, he hears that there's been a great turning to God in the Lisu people and hundreds of people had come to Christ. I want us to end with this. I want you to notice that not all the pain has gone yet. And we'll look at this next week. That Elijah goes on a 40-day journey to meet with God in a cave where he still raises some of the things that he raised in that first prayer. He says in verse 14, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. So notice what's not there anymore. He doesn't feel suicidal anymore. That's gone. And he doesn't compare himself and say, take my life. I'm no better than the ones who have gone before. Self-pity has gone. Now it's just a God is still pretty desperate because Jezebel's threats are real. And I still am believing I'm the only one. And I still am zealous for you, God, and for you to make a name for him yourself amongst Israel. So not all the pain went in that moment, but something changed when he had a sleep and he had a good meal. Something happened when he looked after, allowed God to look after his priority and looked after his body. He was able to then carry on in the process. And next week we'll look at that God actually isn't always in a hurry to get us out of our pain because pain is taking us somewhere for an encounter in a cave with God. And then the following week we'll look at that God meets us in a place of silence where we hear his voice that's restorative and gives us a fresh perspective.